This is The Channel, a podcast from the International Institute for Asian Studies. Welcome to The Channel. I'm your host, Benjamin Linder. Today on the podcast, I'm happy to be joined by Chunyan Shu. Chunyan received her PhD in Chinese studies from Leiden University in 2013, and she currently works as an acquisitions editor at Brill. Brill was founded here in Leiden in 1683, and it has since become a well-known publishing house across the globe, particularly with respect to Asian studies. The world of academic publishing can feel daunting for young scholars, especially for those who have not received much guidance in the process of crafting and pitching an academic monograph. As someone with lots of experience, both as a scholar and an academic editor, Chunyan is an ideal person to help demystify this process. In the following conversation, we discuss all manner of things related to the current landscape of Asian studies publishing from the history of Brill itself to what makes a compelling book proposal, from common misconceptions to the future of academic books. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Chunyan Shu. Shu, thank you for joining me on the channel. We're really happy to have you here to talk about Asian Studies Publishing at Brill. Thank you, Ben, for having me. So I want to start with how you got your start in academic publishing. Can you just walk us through how you got into this line of work? Um, yeah, sure. I'd say that I got to know Brill, um, the company first, before I got to know about academic publishing. So back in 2006, during my first year as a PhD student, a candidate, I ran into someone at a lecturer in Leiden who informed me about a part-time position at Brill. So I went for an interview and started working part-time for the then business development manager um, for about two to three years to support the company's efforts in expanding its cooperation with Chinese academic presses. Uh, it was an eye-opener for me, really, uh, my first professional experience outside the university. Because the experience was so positive, later, after I finished my PhD and lived in Asia, I applied for an editorial position at Brill's Singapore office in 2017, which was relatively new at the time, the office. And now I'm back at Brill's Leiden uh, headquarters. Academic publishing is something that slowly grew in me. I was first inspired by my longtime colleague, a senior publisher or acquisitions editor at Brill, who shows all the admirable qualities of an academic, uh, works with uh, an amazing network of scholars. But to me, he himself seems to be working without any teaching, admin or publishing obligations that a scholar usually has to juggle. So a dream job, right? Um, of course, <laughs> the only obligation uh, is to publish quality scholarship of others uh, to understand the needs of a field and to bridge the gap between what's available and what's needed and possible within the field, which, um, as I later found out, requires a unique set of skills and 
extensive experiences built over the years. To me personally, um, the best part is to listen to what the scholars are working on and try to figure out how to present the babies to the academic world. So yes, I, I enjoy my work and it has indeed grown into part of who I am after a few years. You mentioned that you kind of got your start as an academic, and I wonder, can you tell us a little bit about your scholarly background before we get into this transition you made into the publishing side of academia? Mm -hmm. I have a master's degree in intercultural communication from the School of Journalism and Communication at Peking University in China, and I did a PhD at Leiden University on intellectual perceptions of what is called the Chinese national character. So I don't know if we have time, I could say a few words about my research. Yeah, um, please. I think it would be interesting. Yeah. Um, at the end of the 19th century, an American missionary wrote a book called Chinese Characteristics, in which he described, I think, 26 characteristics he observed over the decades when he lived in China. It represented a certain perception of the nation and the culture uh, from the West at the time. And I believe it inspired a prominent Chinese intellectual, Liang Qichao, uh, to call and create an ideal, what he called a new people, a young China. This concept through uh, Japan, actually, uh, ironically, then uh, later was borrowed by Chinese reformers at the turn of the 20th century to try and modernize the nation. And it is still a very, very relevant term today in cultural intellectual debates, especially when it comes to perceptions of China from within and outside. So that's what I did in my PhD project to analyze the development of the concept and the debates uh, around cultural identity uh, from the beginning to uh, the most recent intellectual debates. Can you say something about what it was like making the transition from, uh, say, a PhD or a more or less traditional academic track into the publishing world? What was that? Was it difficult to make that jump, or do you feel like you were well prepared to make it given this this background you have? I think it was a very natural and organic process for me because, as I said. While I was starting my PhD, I worked part-time for Brill. So to me, Brill is first the group of people that I work with, with within the publishing unit and also from other departments. Um, and of course, it also means the wide global academic network that the company has built over the years. Um, as a researcher, it's actually a privilege to work with such a diverse team of people closely connected to academia. Um, so it was very natural and uh, without much, uh, how do I say, uh, conflict in, in work culture uh, for me. Uh, it might be different for other people, but I do think that an academic background will help you build a career in academic publishing, and that's for sure. Um, for one thing, uh, you would understand much better what the researchers and scholars you work with are going through and that they can certainly feel while you work with them. Now that you're acquisitions editor at Brill, mm -hmm. what kinds of titles do you focus on? What's on your, your lists at the moment? I work in the Asian Studies Publishing Unit. So we publish 
books, journals, reference work、uh, covering all aspects of Asia. And for me, I'm mostly managing our portfolio、uh, on Southeast Asia, South Asia, Central Asia, and also part of China as well. It's actually quite a wide range of topics, but yeah,、uh, but we have an extensive network among Asian studies. So、um, I have had the privilege of of getting to know a lot of、uh, scholars on Asia. You mentioned that Brill is this、uh, very large publisher, obviously, and also a really diverse place to work. I wonder if you can just、yeah. say something about what it's like working for one of these global powerhouses of academic publishing. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm naturally very proud of、uh, my company,、uh, but I wouldn't say it's really a large company because.、Um, Okay, let me just put it this way: Brill and its Asian Studies list has a good reputation. We are highly specialized. We produce quality publications, and we work with excellent scholars. It's something、uh, that we strive to guard and and continue to develop. As you know, academic publishing is not really the most eye-catching business, and specifically academic publishing in humanities and social sciences, which is Brill's core business. It's relatively unknown to people outside the inner circle.、Um, The significance of academic publishing and humanities publishing, in particular, are not stressed enough. I feel、um, the critical questions we ask and the many answers we try to give are, I believe, keys to understanding where we, as a society,、uh, as human beings, have been, and to envisioning where we should go. So I think this is something that that Brill and and my colleagues feel very strongly about, and that's why we have this. Real blog called "Cause Humanities Matter,"、um, and I highly identify with with this、uh, goal and mission statement.、Uh, so that makes it really、um, interesting for me to work、um, at Brill as a specialized publishing house, not too big, but also not too small either. We actually, indeed, we have、uh, a global presence. We have offices、uh, in in the U.S. in Asia, and we have、uh, a great network,、uh, sales teams all over the world as well. So、um, it is really an ideal combination of of specialized,、um, what you can call a boutique publishing house, but with a global、uh, network. You just mentioned that Asian studies is one of the. Niches that Brill is particularly known for,、mm-hmm. and when we first met off mic,、uh, I don't know, a month or so ago, you said、mm-hmm. a little bit about how that specialization came to be with respect to the history of the company. And I wonder, it, it was such an interesting story. I wonder if you could say something about the history of Brill,、mm-hmm. possibly with a special focus on how it became an Asian studies、uh, focused publisher.、Mm-hmm. Of course,、uh, I only got to know about it later, but it's a really interesting、uh, story, as you said, and we actually have a book about it. So, <laughs>、uh, um, Brill was established、um, in 1683 and has a long tradition of serving the research communities in Asian studies. Its legacy of publishing Chinese studies can be traced back to the 19th century, when. At the time, it acquired the exclusive right to the Chinese and Japanese printing types、uh, from the Dutch Ministry of Colonial Affairs. So、um, it was part of the product of of that time, 
where the government had the need to understand uh, in order to govern that part of the world, uh, to uh, understand the language and the people uh, in the Far East, including, of course, uh, the many Chinese people uh, in Indonesia at the time. Um, so for that reason, it then published uh, quite a lot of important dictionaries and other reference works, uh, later journals um, on uh, far, the Far East in languages that were not able to be used by other publishing houses. So we were involved in, uh, for example, Malay and Javanese and also in uh, Sanskrit, which are still a very strong part of our list. So that uh, continued and then was later developed by uh, our colleagues in the Asian Studies Publishing Department. We also then actually uh, published uh, Van Hulik's work. I don't know if you know mm -hmm. uh, about him. And his work in recent years have been also published by Chinese presses in China as well. So it is part of the yeah interesting um, dynamic we have here. A lot of our work uh, that's related to Asia are now also exerting influences in Asia because of the long history and, and a unique position it had. But on the other hand, we're also trying to publish works from Asia, sort of to, to bring the Asian voices on Asia to the wider academic world, English publishing academic world. So yeah, that's, um, that's the, uh, the dynamic, interesting dynamic we have. But the history then, uh, then continued. And it, it's really fair to say that Brill's Asian Studies list grew hand in hand with the development of Sinology at Leiden University. Um, for example, we have still the, the oldest, one of the oldest journals on, on Sinology, Tongbao and uh, one of the oldest book series on Sinology, Sinicalidentia. Uh, these are all uh, the crown jewels of, of our uh, publishing list. And uh, yeah, among others, these have made Brio uh, one of the most important publishers for scholarly work on East Asia, I dare say. I want to transition now into more the day-to-day the -day part of your work as an acquisitions editor, let's start from the beginning. How do you go about finding interesting authors and interesting book proposals that you might want to pursue? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's my most important and, and interesting or fun part of the job. And there are many different ways of finding authors and editors. Many of them you sort of inherit when you are put in charge of a list. And these include existing authors and editors and editorial board members who have been working with Brill. Another way is to go to academic conferences in your field. And there will always be certain uh, regular conferences, either annual or biannual conferences that you know of. Um, so we normally work with the conference organizers to set up book exhibitions. And we, as publishers, who then attend the conference in person to connect with participants when it was possible. And, of course, during COVID, uh, it, it stopped and we had to do this virtually, which is not ideal. Um, but since uh, a few months, we have been visiting conferences and, and participating in conferences in person, which uh, everybody really enjoyed, including our authors and editors. We then introduce our new titles to scholars and also go to panels to 
get a grasp of what's being discussed and what's important uh, in the field. It is an ideal place to get to know potential authors and editors, but also to connect with uh, existing authors and editors. Of course, there are also authors who uh, know Brill, who have used our books and who would then identify themselves with us. Uh, they would reach out to us either by email or mostly by email. Um, I don't really know, you know, what percentage um, of our authors uh, reach out to us, but really a fair amount of people um, write to us uh, either to submit their proposals straight away or to ask questions. They have either uh, just... Uh, got to know us through a website or being recommended by the professors or senior colleagues to contact us. And we're really happy to, to work with them. So when you receive a new book proposal, whether some one that you've solicited through contacts you may have made at conferences or via other avenues in your network, or whether it's one of these unsolicited proposals, what is it that you're looking for when you first open that Word document? What what are you looking to catch your eye when you open a book proposal? Yeah, that moment you click open this document, <laughs> you would uh, first try to understand what the central question is, what this work is trying to address. Um, I guess the most important criteria that we we use is first whether the manuscript itself is suitable for our readers because we receive quite a lot of proposals that are more suited for the general public academic work but more um for non-specialists and they are most of the time not really suitable um, for us um but then uh if they are, then the next thing we look at is really if this proposal has the potential of, of passing the double-blind peer review process. And, of course, the the question and the answers the author tries to give will have to address the questions or make contributions that are important to the field. So we are the first goalkeepers. But then uh, after that, we heavily rely on our editorial board to provide us with more insights because they would be the most suitable judges to a certain topic and they would know um, the significance of of this proposal and we then will listen to them and and uh, follow up on that are there any particular themes or maybe geographical regions or approaches that at present are calling out to you more than others or things that you would like to see more of being published by Brill? My colleagues and I, we cover a quite wide range of uh, topics. So we have a publishing unit on Asian studies. We also have a history unit, um, religion, law, and Islamic studies. So each unit will be looking for the next important publications. And for me specifically, um, I'm working on a few fields in particular. Of course, there are the evergreens, right? And that you know that will be very relevant, important, and that will keep producing good monographs or edited volumes. And there are also scholars that you know that you can work with to produce very important reference work, either dictionaries or handbooks. But 
For me personally, I'm working on a few projects that I find really interesting. Uh, one is um, environmental issues in the Asia-Pacific region. There are a lot of interests and uh, it's, of course, uh, a very important field, uh, not only to scientists, but also to humanities and social sciences as well. So I have a series called Political Ecology uh, in the Asia-Pacific and such topics are not really, uh, you know, the traditional anthropological or historical analysis, but uh, they are very much re- uh, connected with that, but also very much relevant to the challenges we face today. So that's one example. Another field, for example, is uh, on migration and especially Chinese overseas. It is a topic that's close to my heart. Um, And if you ask me, it's a very um, underdeveloped field in terms of publications. So I publish a book series on Chinese overseas. Uh, We have two journals in the field, and I am now uh, working with scholars in Asia and Europe to develop a handbook series on Chinese migration in different parts of the world. And hopefully that would help to set foundation for a lot more research uh, in the future. Yeah, so these are two examples I can I can give you. There are, of course, many more. <laughs> are there big differences between, say, the initial proposal that comes in and the complete manuscript that ultimately becomes a book from Brill? So mm-hmm. how can you gauge the quality of what will become the final book based on the proposal? That's a very good question because <laughs> it is it is actually um, in my eyes the contribution of the publisher um, or the publishing house. Um, um, so what we do uh, from the beginning to the end um, is to try and bring the proposal or the first draft to the next level to where it can be. So yes, uh, to answer your question directly. There is a big difference between the proposal and the, and the draft manuscript and the final book you see. And um, how do we do that? We um, mostly through the peer review process, of course. So um, once we receive the proposal, we will submit to the editorial board, and the board will then identify a, a few potential peer reviewers in the field who they believe would uh, help the author and the manuscript. Um, Then we will send the review reports together with the board's comments to the authors and editors. Uh, Hopefully these constructive criticism will help the authors and editors to um, take a new look at their own work. Because if you've been working uh, on your project for so many years, it's so dear to you, it is very hard to see it from other perspectives. So these uh, reports and comments would serve as a fresh view of the manuscript and hopefully a lot of important questions will be addressed and um, the mistakes or potential um, errors will be uh, corrected. And then uh, before it becomes the final manuscript, we always recommend authors to go through the manuscript, either with the help of a copy editor or with somebody else to polish the language as well. And that 
sometimes also make a di- big difference. So the final manuscript, as we、um, publish it, hopefully would be a much better version of the draft manuscript, and that is what we try to do through this whole process. I'm sure it varies a lot, but can you estimate on average how much time that whole process takes? Say from the moment you have approved. A proposal past that first gate that you mentioned until the book gets released, hot off the presses. What、mm. what general timeline are we talking about here? Yeah, sure. So there are three different phases, and two two of them that we can really not control. The first is the peer review, because、uh, with a list provided by the board, we would then reach out and invite potential reviewers, and it's really. Uh, up to the reviewers to schedule their work and then come back with us with a report.、Uh, we try to provide a time frame, but as you all know,、uh, it's very difficult to estimate exactly when the report will come out, and we don't really have control over that process.、Uh, some reviewers.、Um, Have other more important obligations, and others got delayed, and there's a, a certain incident. So、um, that's the part we cannot control. We try to limit it into maybe six, eight weeks, and it can be very fast. But unfortunately, in some cases, it can be longer than we expected. So that's the first part, and the second part is the revision part, and that part. We try to manage together with the author, but it's also not really within our control.、Um, so, with different reports and comments, and sometimes the author can quickly identify which part they should revise and come up with a、um, a proposal to a revision plan, and then execute it. But other times it can also take much longer because the reports somehow inspired them to take a completely different、uh, route, and they want to expand or complete. And you know, it's never perfect. So、uh, it's our job also to try and、uh, communicate with the author、uh, and to manage that time. So these two parts、um, are out of our control、uh, as a publishing house, but we try to work together with the reviewers and authors to. Make sure that it doesn't get delayed too much. And the third part, it's very、uh, clear that once the manuscript is submitted to our production department,、uh, I'm talking about the final manuscript, and then it takes about、uh, five to six months for it to be released. And that process,、uh, it, it sounds quite long, but that in- process includes. <clears throat> Desk editing, typesetting, cover design,、uh, proofs, and then communicating with authors、uh, after the first proofs and the second proofs, indexing—all kinds of things behind the scenes that、uh, our colleagues in production would do together with the author. And、um, but that、uh, I'm really happy to to say that that's part we can control, and it's normally five to six months. So、uh, if you're lucky. The review process is fast, and、uh, you revise it accordingly, and then it gets published probably within a year. But、uh, in other cases,、uh, if you're unlucky, then it gets delayed at step one, step two. Then it takes much longer. Are there any titles either that have already been published or that are forthcoming that you're particularly excited about? Without choosing favorites, I wonder if you could mention <laughs> any that you you have a particular fondness for. 
Yeah, I I want to mention a, um, a two open access book series. It is our strategy to develop in open access, and I think it is also in everybody's interest to uh, develop open access in, in academic publishing. Um, so I have uh, established two open access book series. One is called Collected Works of Yao Tongyi. And Yao is a renowned Sinologist, was a renowned Sinologist um, based in Hong Kong. The Hong Kong Baptist University and Yao Tongyi Institute are working with us to publish a collection of his essays in many different fields, um, translated from essays he wrote uh, in Chinese. So there will be a book on his work on music, and there will be another uh, volume on his views on cosmology, and another one in a completely different field in sinology. And he, he was himself uh, also a painter and calligrapher and also a linguist. So we have now seven volumes uh, in the pipeline, and this year we're going to publish three volumes uh, which are all open access. So everybody who's interested in, in this kind of work could just visit our website and read chapters and the whole book if uh, they like. I'm quite really proud of that because it is a very long, tedious process of acquiring rights and working with translators and editors and figuring out everything and publishing in open access. But it is a way to bridge um, two worlds, uh, translation uh, project itself. You know, they are in nature difficult. It's a reinvention. And uh, the translation of works of such a renowned scholar can be very important for future researchers. So I'm really proud of that. And um, I'm really happy to work with uh, people, the group of researchers and management staff on this project. And another one, uh, open access book series, is called Agriculture and the Making of Sciences. It is uh, a project that we work together with the Max Planck Institute, the History of Science, on um, agricultural texts from the Far East, from, from China to the Ottoman Empire at the time, and see how these texts and uh, knowledge had created different uh, understandings and concepts and how they influenced each other, and then how that process had um, yeah, made sciences uh, in different worlds. And that's a fascinating subject. It's, uh, again, connected to intercultural communication, but also to uh, historical texts. Um, and I think these are the things that we're really good at uh, to create these bridges uh, with some people would describe difficult languages because it involves Arabic, it involves uh, classical Chinese and other languages as well. You um, Researchers have to have a command of many different skills in order to do the research. So um, we're really proud that we get to work with a very um, reputable Max Planck Institute. And we're really proud that this, this topic is really also uh, what we are really good at. Uh, and it is brought to the world, uh, you know, open access. So, yeah, uh, these are the things to, to uh, look out for.
And I hope uh, people who read them will really enjoy them and benefit from them. One of the things that we're trying to do by developing this podcast is not only to publicize research, although we do that also, but especially to offer resources for scholars, especially junior scholars, about kind of the nuts and bolts of making it in academia. And when you and I met for the first time, you mentioned that your work also entails running workshops, often at conferences, about how to get published at a place like Brill. Can you Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about those workshops that you offer? Yeah, absolutely. It really started um, in Singapore. Of course, my uh, my colleagues do that as well uh, for their respective networks. Uh, so when I started in Singapore, there were a lot of questions, like you said, coming from junior scholars um, regarding the process of publishing and, and others uh, might feel a bit hesitant in contacting us because they thought, oh, this is such a uh, a good name, uh, am I okay, you know, am I able to publish with them? So there are many, many different questions from scholars who don't really understand the, the process. Uh, to them, of course, uh, they've been trained as researcher and uh, they know uh, their subject. But in terms of publishing, it's a whole new field and it sometimes seems like a black box. At least it was to me back then when I did my PhD, nobody told me how to uh, reach out to a publisher and where you should publish your own work. So you normally just get bits and pieces from your colleagues and maybe from your professors. But um, it was, it, I felt my job to uh, inform people of what we do so that um, it's a clear and transparent process. And with this information I provide, they can make informed decisions about uh, where to publish and how to publish. So I did then go to, for example, the National University of Singapore or the Nanyang Technological University, uh, oftentimes in cooperation with conference organizers or sometimes the libraries organize events for junior scholars as well. So then I would introduce Brill as one of the publishing houses available and then tell them about the book publishing process, which I briefly described uh, described to you earlier, and then uh, let them understand what uh, they should do and actually also tell stories of uh, mistakes that we see and uh, that other people encounter. So that is really... Uh, what I consider a service, but a, a worthwhile service to the community. Uh, so in that presentation, I normally talk about peer review process and about how to do research before you even submit a proposal and how to write your proposal. And also a bit of a <laughs> sort of psychological support and what you should do when you receive that uh, review report. <laughs> it can be daunting. Um, and uh, what happens afterwards, how to let people know about your book once you've published. Yeah, so uh, it includes a lot of information about publishing, but also practical tips. What are some of the most common questions and concerns that you get when you run these workshops from would-be aspiring authors? I think what what most people want to know is um, how the publishing process looks like. What are the stages? And some don't have a clue and they would ask, uh, for example, how much they need to pay. And that's also a sort of a misconception that uh, in some parts of the world or in some 
uh, areas people need to pay to publish their work. And uh, when I tell them, no, we are a commercial press, so we accept your proposal, and if we publish it, then we recuperate our cost through sales. So that's something new to some scholars. And that's one side of the story. And then the other part would be about copy editing. Uh, a lot of people don't really know how and when to start and, and how where to find somebody to help them. So in that case, I would help them connect uh, with some copy editors that we sometimes work with in, in a specific field. And that would uh, help them to understand and also to, to organize it in a way that their research output is, is finally published in, uh, in a sound and uh, fluent academic English. And that is actually a very important part of it because um, not everybody is a native speaker. I'm not a native speaker of English and uh, our authors come from all corners of the world. So even for native speakers, you know, there will be mistakes in your manuscript. So it's a very important process to uh, to go through. And um, copy editing is something that we would really highly recommend to all authors. And we try to help by connecting them with, with people we work with as well. For anyone listening who might be interested in submitting a proposal to Brill, if you could offer, say, one or two key tips for how to catch your eye with a good proposal, what would you say to those listeners? I, I think I think the proposal speaks for itself. Of course, it is really important to spend some time and do research first about publishing. For example, if you just finished your PhD and you want to revise it into a monograph, your first book, then it's very important to collect information about potential publishers because you want to make sure that this proposal on this manuscript, this book is treated properly. So in that case, do some research about the publishing house that you are thinking about um, and ask your colleagues and professors and look through the website of the publishing house and find a potential editor that um, you can reach out to. So most of the time, for example, on Brill uh, website, you will be able to find a list of acquisitions editors. In other companies, it might be called uh, commissioning editors or publishers. Um, you know, these people who you can reach out to and who will receive your proposal and find the right venue to submit uh, it to. So then in that case, write a personal email to that um, editor. And if they are not the right person, they would normally then forward your proposal to the right person. And it's important also to uh, know uh, which publishers specialize in your field, of course. And uh, some publishers might be really good at, for example, Asian studies, but others might be really good in history or religion. So it's, it's really uh, worthwhile to spend time to do research before you reach out and send that mass email, just copy-paste the text and then replace it with a publishing house name. And it's very, very easy to tell the difference. I want to end as we approach the conclusion here with an admittedly broad question. 
Mm-hmm. How do you see the current state of academic book publishing? We're obviously in this moment in academia where the fields are rapidly changing and often not for the better, unfortunately. So if I can ask you to speculate a little bit, what do you see as the future of Asian studies publishing broadly? Mm. Um, I earlier briefly talked about the importance of the humanities and uh, humanities publishing. I think with the challenges we face today, it is ever more important <laughs> to do proper academic publishing and to spread the knowledge and information that scholars and researchers have produced to guide us through these challenging times. As you say, there are really, what, what, how can I call it, uh, developments all over the world that we might not <laughs> really see as progressive or favorable by um, a certain group of people or by actually the academia. Uh, these include geopolitical developments, but also include developments in academia in general or uh, in humanities um, in particular. But I think I'm still quite positive as a colleague of mine always say, look, Brio still exists and we are doing well. It means that um, our books and journals and reference works are being used. And that means that there are still people who create important work and who are contributing to our understanding of the world and where it's going. And then there are people who are buying and hence being influenced by such work. So I think this is very much in line with what we're trying to do. We're trying to create more understanding rather than building walls. We're trying to bring more voices rather than to spreading one view of the world. Because for us, the only criteria is really sound academic quality. And, and that actually brings a lot different views and sometimes conflicting views in a certain field. And that's what we need. I think if people are reading them, then there's hope, right? <laughs> and we have a lot of young scholars reaching out and we publish a lot of their work as well. So I believe Publishing is here to stay and academic publishing is here to stay no matter in which format. I have a family member who jokingly told me, oh, books are dead. But I say, no, yeah, you might be true, but we produce ebooks. You know, contents and knowledge will survive um, no matter what. So that is actually my answer, I think, with digital um, humanities and with uh, ebooks and with new research tools, we are still doing the right thing by, uh, like I said, bridging the gap of understanding uh, instead of um, building walls. So I think there's still hope. <laughs> and yeah, I think, I think that's what drives us and that's what drives scholars uh, in the field of humanities as well. Uh, it seems that you've been, you've been you are, uh, working from a limited uh, space, you know, in your office and you're reading books and you're writing alone. But in fact, I would say you're not alone because you, uh, by publishing your books and, and articles, you're being heard and 
you don't have to have a big following, but the impact and and influences are measured otherwise uh, in different ways. Yeah, it's great to end on that kind of an optimistic <laughs> note, and it, it's nice for you to explain that. I know that we here at the International Institute for Asian Studies always like it when Brill titles come in, uh-huh. so um, keep them coming. We're definitely uh, looking forward to the future titles. Until then, Chunyan, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the podcast and walk us through some of the nuts and bolts of the academic publishing world as you see it from your vantage at Brill. Um, we hope in the future you can come back again sometime. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. It's, uh, it's really nice chatting with you, and I hope that uh, this will be helpful to some of your listeners. Thank you. That was Chun Yan Shu, an acquisitions editor at Brill Publishing. Thank you for listening to the channel. Please subscribe to receive all future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the International Institute for Asian Studies, a globally-oriented institution based at Leiden University in the Netherlands. We are dedicated to fostering an integrated, multidisciplinary understanding of Asia and beyond, and we would love for you to get involved. For more information on our conferences, webinars, publications, and fellowship program, please visit eas.asia. That's I-I-A-S dot A-S-I-A. See you next time.